from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome to this Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director. I'm sitting today with my colleague Ian Bond, the director of foreign policy at the, at the CER. We're going to talk about the EU's troubled relationship with China. Well, Charles, perhaps I can start off by asking you why you think the relationship has got so troubled. I mean, a few years ago, EU and China seemed to be uh, working together, together quite well. They were describing each other as strategic partners and so on. So what's gone wrong in this relationship? Well, I think it's, it's tensions been building for a couple of years since in March 2019, the EU produced a document calling China both a systemic rival and an economic competitor. And I think the, the, the root of the problem has been growing economic tensions and complaints by European businesses. But then the COVID-19 crisis has sort of accentuated the difficulties and led to a, a bit more angst than there was before. But the, the, the background is that many European businesses feel that China doesn't play fair, they feel that it steals their intellectual property, that, that Chinese firms can buy up European firms unfairly using cheap subsidi subsidies they get from the Chinese government, which, which is distorting the so-called level playing field. And uh, they feel that um, China's guilty of a number of unfair practices. And this, this has sort of reinforced the feeling in France and Germany that Europe needs to build up European champions, globally significant firms that are big enough to resist uh, Chinese competition. And that uh, the European Union needs to change its competition rules and its merger rules to allow larger firms to emerge within Europe. And there's been a lot of pressure from France and Germany in that direction anyway, not, at, not exclusively aimed at China, but partly with China in mind. And then there's been the... The, uh, the long negotiation of the bilateral investment treaty between China and the EU, this has gone on for very many years, trying to make it easier to invest in each other's countries. And the EU hoped, and the Germans in particular who hold the EU presidency, hoped to sort that out this year, in the second half of this year. But now, now looks that won't happen. And from the EU's point of view, China is simply not willing to open up its markets uh, to, to allow the kind of investment in its markets that the EU does allow to Chinese firms in European markets. On the business side, there's been a lot of frustration. Then uh, COVID-19 has really reinforced some of these worries about China because it emerged when the pandemic, when the epidemic began, that uh, Europe was very dependent on China for personal protective equipment, for many pharmaceutical products and components, for many rare earths, and that supply chains were very vulnerable to something going wrong with, with the relationship with China. So there's been a strong movement within Europe since the crisis began to diversify supply chains and to become less dependent on, on China. So for all these reasons, the EU's adopted a number of measures uh, in recent years, which are coming into enforce this year, uh, such as a new regulation on investment screening, which goes into force in October. Uh, there'll be new, uh, new, a new white paper from the Commission on state aid, trying to apply some of its state aid regime, not just to EU countries, but to countries outside the EU, uh, like China. And there's a just, I'd say when I talk to EU officials who work on China, there's a growing frustration that 
the Chinese seem to promise a lot and say say nice words, but but they don't follow up with real commitments. Their promises remain unfulfilled, and there are particular difficult areas which have which have caused a lot of uh, concern amongst governments recently: cyber attacks from Chinese sources on EU countries, disinformation about the COVID epidemic, which the European External External Action Services exposed, the treatment of the Uyghurs, and of course there's Hong Kong difficulties there, which we'll come on to. So I think I've I've never known. Uh, a worse relationship than it is. Of course, there are areas where we do work together and have to work together, like climate change and the World Trade Organization. But even there, on areas where, in theory, we agree with each other, uh, you know, climate change, uh, Europe is worried that coal production has, has in China has actually gone up since the Paris agreements. The WTO, the Europeans are frustrated that the Chinese don't seem to be willing to undertake sort of reforms that would entice the Americans to come back in and be more supportive of the WTO. So overall, I, I don't think I've ever known it worse. One of, one of the reasons at the moment why there are particularly acute tensions between the EU and China and, and between Britain and China is the issue of Huawei, the tele Chinese telecoms company, which has started to supply 5G equipment to many countries in the European Union. But America has picked on Huawei and banned it from operating within America since the supply of 5G equipment and also banned American firms from providing components to Huawei. This is now causing huge strain in Europe's relationships with China as some countries like Britain and perhaps France decide to exclude Huawei from their networks or others like Germany aren't quite sure what to do. But what, why is it, Ian, that um, a mere telecoms company can lead to such, such, such geostrategic uh, problems between European countries and China. Well, why is Huawei important? Well, I think that's a very interesting way of putting it, a mere telecoms company, because that, I think, is one of the differences between the way that Europeans look at Huawei and the way that the US looks at Huawei. I mean, it's worth saying to begin with that the, the commercial stakes are enormous. Uh, 5G is a transformative technology over time, it will enable a lot more, for example, automation of factories. Machines in different factories will be able to talk to each other about what components they need and that sort of thing, uh, making manufacturing more efficient. It will support autonomous vehicles. And, of course, it will give ordinary people faster mobile broadband and other communications devices. Um, and if Huawei can dominate that market, first of all, it will make a lot of money. Um, and second of all, de facto, China would be able to impose its technical standards on the rest of the world for the, the foreseeable future. But I think you know, the, the idea of Huawei as a mere telecoms company, that's very much the way that the EU initially looked at this question. Uh, Huawei has European competitors in the form of uh, Ericsson of Sweden and Nokia of Finland. And the European Commission's focus was on ensuring that the European 5G market was open and competitive and there were a range of suppliers. And I think actually that guided the UK's approach to 5G as well. Security hardly got a mention in the EU's 5G action plan um, when it was describing all of the great benefits that would come from the rollout of 5G. For the Americans, Huawei has never just been a, a telecoms company. 
it's been a proxy of the Chinese state and more particularly of Chinese military intelligence. Now, Huawei denies that. They say, you know, if we were ever ordered to do anything in the intelligence field by the Chinese government, uh, their founder has said, you know, I'd shut the company down. Um, but uh, no one in America really believes that. They worry that Huawei would have a backdoor or give a backdoor to the Chinese government into sensitive data on the network, uh, that it might shut off vital communications in a crisis. And that's resulted in um, a real problem over Huawei between the US and Europe. Europeans basically wanted cheap 5G solutions quickly deployed, and Huawei could provide that. And the US said, well, if you install Huawei, particularly in core areas of your 5G networks, we will cut off defense cooperation, we'll cut off intelligence cooperation. And that just alienated a lot of Europeans. And as you indicated, the US is now sort of forcing the issue by saying to not to to uh, American companies only, but to any company that has bought American equipment or technology for making microchips, you can't sell these products to Huawei. Now, in the U UK case, it's pushed the UK into deciding to strip out Huawei 5G equipment from the network over the next uh, seven years. Whether it will have the same impact on other European countries uh, has yet to be seen. I think some will follow the UK lead. Others will be closer to China. But what we can already see is that from the Chinese ambassador in London, warning that the UK will lose out on Chinese investment, and from other quite assertive Chinese ambassadors in other places, um, this will be a tug of war between China and the US, with the Chinese saying, well, you know, if you shut Huawei out of your systems, you can expect that China will take a dim view of that when it comes to deciding where to funnel Chinese investment in future. And the Americans saying, if you rely on us for your defense and security, you had better not install Huawei. And the irony for me in the whole of this is that the main beneficiaries of this uh, American push against Huawei are likely to be two European companies, namely Ericsson and Nokia, because there are no US firms in this field. And I suspect that the other impact that this will have is that it will drive China's program of developing indigenous technology to replace external technology. So the Chinese will be developing Chinese champions, as it were, in some of these fields. Now, you alluded to the fact that there's a renewed interest in Europe, particularly in France and Germany, in developing European champions in the, uh, the high-tech areas. And I think, it'd be, I mean, I'd be interested to know, first of all, what do you think that the uh, the Commission and others are going to do to um, to create such um, such European champions, and whether you think it's a good idea for them to do that? Well, I think I think the trouble with creating European champions of giving allow effectively allowing large European companies to have monopolies within Europe is it reduces competition, leads to higher prices and disadvantages the consumer. That's why I think at the CR we're not great enthusiasts, but. One really has to look at each case on its merits. I think the Mrs. Vestaya, the, the Competition Commissioner, has resisted some of this Franco-German pressure, but does agree, has agreed to look at the way the merger regulation works so that the particular market to look at when you ask the question, should a merger be allowed, in some circumstances could be 
the global market rather than just the European market. I, the, the concern is more about global monopolies than European monopolies. So I think there's a gentle nudging of the rules within the EU all the time to make the emergence of European champions slightly easier. As I've already said, there's a new, there's a new state aid uh, regulation that the, the Commission is planning to try and limit the ability of Chinese companies and other companies to unfairly buy up European companies, particularly when their price is low because of the pandemic, using uh, unfair subsidies from the, the Chinese. And then there's a gradual evolution of European thinking on this in the French and German direction, mainly because the Germans have become more French in their thinking on European champions and less free market orientated. That's just one source of tension. But the, another source of tension, of course, Ian, is, is, is not just Huawei, but Hong Kong, the other, the other H, Hong Kong, um, which is, we've seen the Chinese introduce a new security law, which effectively, far, as far as many European uh, sonologists are concerned, is the end of the one country, two systems model that China gave to Hong Kong when Hong Kong went back to China in 1997. Um, we've seen, uh, We've seen quite strong reaction from the US and the UK, more modest reaction from the European Union itself, because some countries will come onto this and are rather reluctant to pick, pick fights with China. At the end, what do you, um, do you, uh, what do you think, if anything, that the European Union can do about the situation in Hong Kong? Does it have to accept that Hong Kong is basically not so gradually, but slowly moving back into the Chinese system, or can it do anything to stop it happening? Ultimately, Hong Kong is a part of China, and I think there are limits on what the EU can do. Uh, but I wouldn't say that there is nothing that it can do. And I think even if some of the response can only be rhetorical, it's important to, to put down a marker on some of these issues. I think one of the things that's important is to underline that the, the UK-China joint declaration, which set out the terms for Hong Kong's handover to China, is an international treaty. It's registered with the UN as an international treaty. So it's not just a bilateral matter between the UK and China, and still less, as China itself sometimes argues, is this a purely Chinese internal matter, and the joint declaration is completely overtaken by history. You know, a treaty is a treaty, um, and it remains in, in force. And I think it's, it's important for the EU as um, an institution that believes in the power of a, a rules-based order and international law to, to keep making that point. I think a second thing that the EU needs to say is that what China does in Hong Kong cannot but affect the way that the EU relates to, to China, and um, it cannot but affect the way that European companies look at the the legal environment in which they will be operating. And although Hong Kong is not as important economically to China as it was at the time of the handover, it's still quite an important place for investment in China. A lot of European companies funnel their investments in the mainland via Hong Kong. And if it looks as though the law in Hong Kong is now becoming more arbitrary, that you can't rely on it not being overruled by Beijing. I think that, that's problematic. And I think even if it's only in private, the EU should be, should be making that point. I think there are some concrete things that the EU can do. 
those countries that have extradition arrangements with Hong Kong should follow the, the UK and the US in suspending them so that they can't be abused against uh, political dissidents uh, who, who are based overseas. The more so because the national security law that that uh, is now on the books in Hong Kong seems to have extraterritorial effects. It seems to say even if you are not a resident of China or Hong Kong, if you say something that we regard as subversive or calling into question Hong Kong's status as part of China, um, we we can prosecute you for that even if you did it somewhere overseas. And I think that's quite sinister and um, really quite a problem if you have an extradition agreement with um, with Hong Kong. So that's one thing. I think the the EU needs to tighten up on the export of um, arms and dual-use goods to Hong Kong, and especially anything that can be used to facilitate repression. There's been a long-standing um, problem, I would say, between the European Parliament and the Council over whether the the EU should control more closely the export of technology that could be used for surveillance. Um, and, um, you know, I think now is the time to say, well, really, this is something we need to, to control more strictly. And I think it would be good if the EU um, joined the UK and others in offering refuge to people from Hong Kong who have reason to fear the Chinese authorities. Uh, you know, that's that would be something to show Democrats in Hong Kong that they haven't been abandoned. What concerns me is I, I'm not sure whether you could find a consensus at the moment in the EU to take such steps. Um, and perhaps that's a, a moment when I might throw back to you, Charles, the, the point that you alluded to earlier, which is whether, in fact, the EU is united in its approach to, to China or rather divided? Um, and you know, what, if anything, can be done about those divisions in opinions about China? The, the Europeans have not been very united on China because essentially most of them have seen China as a market and uh, China's economy is so important that they are, are very reluctant to pick a fight with the world's second biggest economy, especially when they're trading more and more of it. That's about, I mean, all European countries have seen China as an important market, and they've worried much less about uh, the security implications of what goes on in China than the Americans have. Then we'll come on to differences between America and Europe in a minute. Um, but Germany in particular, which accounts for roughly half of all the EU's trade with China, has, has been very, very reluctant to pick a fight with China. I think Mrs Merkel has been there more than a dozen times in her in her 14 or so years as German Chancellor, she's really taken the Chinese relationship very, very seriously. And she's somebody who does care about human rights and in other contexts like Russia has been rather more reluctant to speak out on human rights in China, at least in, in, in public. Um, but other countries like Sweden, um, who do, do care about human rights in a big way, who have been more critical of China and have got into fights with China on, on, on human rights issues, as, as indeed the British are now doing so that they've left the EU. Italy is a country that has a close economic relationship with China, has been rather reluctant to criticise it. Hungary has a very close relationship and has basically prevented the EU criticising China in a number of international forums in recent years. If you, the EU wants to get a criticism together, the Hungarians simply have vetoed it. So the Europeans are, are dis, a bit disunited when it comes to the human rights aspects of China policy. I think they're more united, though, in being tough on the economic issues we discussed earlier. 
That's why um, German companies in particular have become very concerned about, as they perceive it, un unfair behavior by Chinese firms, in theft of intellectual property, unfair state aid, and so on. And there was a, when the Chinese bought a German robot company a few years ago called KUKA, that really went down very badly in Germany. So I think the, the Germans have moved towards greater hostility towards China, particularly on the economic sphere, less on the human rights sphere. Uh, while overall there's a range of opinions in the EU, but I think the, of course, the Chinese have their so-called 17 plus one format, whereby they meet with uh, EU member states from Eastern Europe and those that are not in the EU from the Balkans once a year and promise a lot of investment, which is to some degree bought, bought friendship for the Chinese in Central and Eastern Europe. Though it hasn't worked entirely because the Poles, which were part of this, have got, rather got fed up with it and feel they haven't been treated very fairly. So the Chinese are quite clever at offering baubles to those who might be willing to be their friends, offering investment, particularly in countries like Greece, Portugal, Italy. They've had a lot of offers of investment. Italy's joined the Belt and Road Initiative of China, which is its great uh, network. It's building and stretching out from China towards, towards Europe. I think the Chinese are quite clever at playing a game of divide and rule amongst the Europeans, but over and with some success, but overall, despite that, the European Union has adopted this paper saying that China is a systemic rival, and overall it is becoming more hostile to China, and overall the EU is adopting new measures which will make it harder for Chinese companies to operate in Europe unless China opens up its own markets and is, demonstrates more reciprocity than it seems to be uh, demonstrating at the moment. And the Germans put so much effort into this bilateral investment treaty and hope to have it concluded as a big summit in Leipzig in September. The Chinese pulled out of that summit and nobody knows when, it, when or if this bilateral investment treaty will ever come to fruition. Well, so we, we've, we've talked a bit about European, European unity or the lack of it vis-a-vis -vis China, but of course, if you are dealing with China, China's very big, so you, you're more likely to get what you want if you speak from a, a, a larger base with more people in the same room as you. Uh, and the Europeans, when they are united, do have some leverage with China on, their, on economic and business regulation, but have even more leverage if they work with the US. And uh, socially, it seems to me, Ian, that the US uh, and China and the EU do agree to some degree on what's wrong with the Chinese behavior, certainly unfair behavior by Chinese companies in terms of stealing intellectual property and state aid and so on. But the, the Europeans and Americans don't appear to be working together very effectively or, or even at all on, on dealing with China. Why, why can the Europeans and Americans not cooperate better in, in confronting China? I mean, I think a few years ago, um, I would have said that there was probably broad agreement between the EU and the, the US um, about the sort of the economic rise of, of China as broadly beneficial, but with problems that you had to resolve over market access and theft of intellectual property and so on. And an expectation that as China got richer, it would converge politically with the, the West, the idea that it would be a, a responsible stakeholder in the international system. I think the Americans were always more worried about China's military rise and the issues that that um, caused for the US in the Western Pacific. What we saw was a very different approach from the Trump administration, um, and that has caused quite a divergence between EU and US approaches. Part of the problem is that Trump is as hostile to the EU as he is to China. I mean, if we're to believe um, John Bolton, then Trump said that the EU was worse than China, only smaller. Um, 
But Trump's unilateralist approach to to um, to trade issues in particular has been quite problematic for the EU. I mean, the EU wanted to deal with China's unfair trading practices through the WTO. Trump basically wants to blow up the WTO and use bilateral measures to, to pressurize China. And one of the results of that is that instead of forcing open the Chinese market for everybody, he's forcing China to buy more US goods. And that may mean they buy fewer goods from, from Europeans. So I think that's, that's quite a problem. Um, that I think in some respects, certainly early on in the Trump term, gave the Chinese the opportunity to look as though they were the defenders of multilateralism. And I certainly thought that uh, you know the EU might even be able to work more easily with the Chinese in the WTO than with, with the Trump administration. Um, I think to some extent that's even been borne out in the fact that uh, the EU and China have signed up to a an interim um system for dealing with appeals in the WTO as a result of the fact that the US has blocked the the work of the appellate body there. But I think what we're seeing more recently is that there is actually some renewed convergence between the EU and the US. I don't think all the damage has been repaired, but partly because of of COVID-19 and the rather aggressive way that China dealt with countries that criticised it over over COVID-19, partly because of growing concerns about human rights, about the Uyghurs, uh, about Hong Kong, which we spoke about earlier. I think there is more concern in Europe than there has been. And um, after initially ignoring a European proposal for transatlantic discussions of China, the U.S. Secretary of State finally accepted the idea, and I think you know that's going ahead. So I don't think all of the bruises from earlier American behaviour have have healed, but I think perhaps there is a bit more scope for the U.S. and the EU to strategize together about how to deal with the the challenges of China. We're probably still going to disagree about the extent to which we can work with the Chinese on areas of common interest, not least because as long as the Trump administration is in power, uh, we and the Chinese think that there is a problem with climate change and the US still fundamentally doesn't. Uh, But, you know, that's something which might not last beyond the change of an administration. Um, But uh, I think, you know, Chinese behaviour as much as... um, you know, sensible analysis from the EU and the US is perhaps um, pushing Europe and America back together again. It's not just China and, sorry, it's not just Europe and America who have been taking a similar view. I mean, for some reason, and I'm not entirely sure why, China has used the COVID-19 crisis to become more assertive and in some ways more antagonistic towards many other countries in other parts of the world. I mean, the Europeans... And America, arguably, but in Britain, arguably, but also Vietnam, Australia, Canada, Japan, Taiwan, and so on. So now these countries are not forming an anti-Chinese alliance in, uh, at all. I should have added India to that list, by the way. There's no anti-Chinese alliance emerging, but there is a group of countries in the world with rather disparate interests who don't have a lot in common necessarily. Who's, who all at the same time are starting to think China's getting too big for its boots, getting very assertive. It seems to be quite arrogant to the way it deals with other countries. It's becoming antagonistic on certain issues. 
I'm not saying that China is to blame in all these disputes other countries. I'm certainly not saying that, but it, it certainly is becoming more assertive than it was. And so long as that continues, I suppose that will be some pressure on the US and the EU to coordinate their responses. The trouble is the fundamental, the fundamental differences of philosophy between the US and the EU will, I think, remain however much China may rile both of them. And essentially, the EU will, will continue to be more pragmatic and see China as a market which can't be ignored. And EU's, the EU, EU side is not going to want to break off relations with China ever, really, as far as I can see. Well, the US is so big and strong in its own right and so focused on security issues, it could actually, if it really wanted to, just cut off contact with China and just ignore it to some, to some degree. As you say, it's less concerned about climate change than the Europeans are anyway. So it doesn't have to talk to the, the US doesn't have to talk to the Chinese about climate change. Now, just before we finish here, and a couple of final points. One is if Biden uh, gets in, which is the polls suggest is a real possibility, would that, how would that change the geopolitics of, of the West's efforts to deal with China? Well, Biden would be more inclined to work with partners. I think that's the main, the main thing. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's inconceivable that Biden would ever say that the, the EU was as bad as or worse than China and therefore, you know, uh, just another enemy for America to, to deal with. So I think we would expect to see a more cooperative approach. But in in substance, I don't think American concerns about the direction of China's development would change much Um with the arrival on the scene of, of a new democratic president, there's pretty much a bipartisan consensus in the US that uh, the way that China has behaved in recent years poses a threat to American interests. And of course, unlike any European country, America is committed to um, look after Taiwan. Um, and China's behavior towards Taiwan has been a lot more aggressive in recent months and uh, particularly since the COVID-19 pandemic. But uh, even before that, China had started to be much more assertive towards Taiwan. So I think that poses a particular challenge to America that perhaps Europeans um, don't appreciate as much as they as much as they should. I, I question whether the US could, in fact, cut itself off from China without doing immense economic damage to itself. I mean, something like 15% of America's trade is with China. Um, and even though the trade balance is tilted very much towards, um, towards China, uh, you know, China runs an enormous surplus with the US, uh, it would be quite difficult for the, U for the US in the short term to replace what it gets from China. Um, so, you know, I think we're doomed, all of us, I mean, similar level of, um, of economic entanglement on the part of the EU and China equally dependent on the EU and the US. I think we're all doomed to this entanglement. And the question is, can we manage it peacefully? Well, I think the, the more we're moving into a situation of a kind of uh, emerging Cold War between the US and China, the harder it is for Europeans to deal with that, the harder it is for Europeans to have a, what I should say is a, a close and constructive relationship with China, because ultimately Europeans have to take sides and they, they would take sides with a, a democratic America rather than the undemocratic China. But I think if we can see an easing of tensions between uh, the US and China, then that makes it easier for Europeans to build their own relationship with China. Of course, we haven't, we haven't talked about the United Kingdom, which has a particularly fraught relationship with China at the moment because of Huawei and because of Hong Kong and other reasons too. Uh, 
happen. Maybe we may, may see the Chinese being pushed out of Britain's nuclear power industry. I think Trump is in, in trade negotiations, as we all know, uh, your strength depends on the size. And that's why Britain as a small country on its own has decided to leave the European Union, cut itself off from its closest and most important market. At the same time, it's picking a fight with China, which is one of its most important trading partners, which is not to say the UK government is necessarily wrong on, on Hong Kong or Huawei at all, but it, is, it, has, it has been quite antagonistic towards China of late. And it's not going to get a trade agreement with Donald Trump's America, we before, certainly before the US election in November. So I think the UK is particularly discomforted by this worsening of relations between the US and China and Europe and China, because it's, it's rather small in pursuing a, a strategy on its own of, of strategic loneliness. I don't know if you agree with that, Ian. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's another podcast worth in talking about uh, about those issues. But I think, yes, there is um, there is quite a problem there. One thing I could say is that um, uh, the the UK is slightly more dependent on trade with the US than it is on trade with China, um, but only slightly. They are both um, very significant trade partners of the UK between the two of them. They amount to almost forty percent of the the UK's trade, um, so uh, you know it's going to be a very de- delicate balancing act for any British government to make sure that it doesn't um, fatally compromise its economic relations with either. Well, perhaps we can conclude by agreeing that if if there is a, a, a continued worsening of the US China relationship, that will make life increasingly uncomfortable for the European Union, but also for the United Kingdom as well. So let's hope that doesn't happen, but it seems to be going in the wrong direction at the moment. Ian, thanks very much for discussing these issues with me. We'll be back for another podcast soon, I'm sure. Cheerio. Thanks, Charles. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.